Today on the Clinical Consult, we'll discuss treatment considerations for atypical anorexia with our guests, Ali Spots DeLazar, a licensed marriage and family therapist, licensed professional clinical counselor, and certified eating disorder specialist with a private practice in the San Fernando Valley in California, and Lauren Molheim, a licensed psychologist in California, fellow of the Academy for Eating Disorders, and certified eating disorder specialist who directs the clinic Eating Disorder Therapy LA. Ellie and Lauren, thanks for joining me today. Sure, glad to be here. Thanks for having us. All right, as I mentioned, our topic is treatment considerations for atypical anorexia. And, and while I think many of our listeners are familiar with what anorexia is and its related symptoms, others are potentially less so familiar with what's meant by that word atypical in this context. So. Lauren, let's start with you. Could you expand a little bit on what we're meaning when we're using that word atypical in this situation? Sure. So atypical anorexia was added to the DSM in 2013 as a type or an example of other specified feeding and eating disorder or OSFED. And atypical anorexia is diagnosed when an individual meets all of the criteria for anorexia except for the low weight criterion. So this means that the patient meets the other two criteria, that they have an intense fear of gaining weight and they have disturbance in the way in which their body weight or shape is experienced, but they don't have an objectively low weight. And it can it can manifest in people who are what we consider in the normal weight range or even in larger bodies. And so this has been a topic of recent research interest and some question why it is even a distinct diagnosis since the only difference from what we see as typical anorexia is one of body size. And I think that we're gathering data and the research is continuing to support that the risks, the psychological, the medical risks are really so comparable. I, I think that hopefully as we go down the timeline, that may end up happening, that it becomes more similar if instead of distinct of a diagnosis. I really appreciate the, the discussion about research interests because I'm aware that, Ali, both you and Lauren recently published a paper in the Journal of Health Service Psychology. And, and I think that paper, as I understand it, presents a situation that a lot of mental health professionals could relate to. And, and it's, it's really connected with what Lauren was just sharing. And that's if a, a patient of moderate or, or of higher weight in an initial session describes that a primary goal of theirs is to lose weight through, through that treatment process. In that situation, What's important to consider in this situation with respect to atypical anorexia? Daniel, the first consideration is actually something I realized about for this podcast, that we all, you may say something, um, Lauren may say something, I may use a word that may feel uncomfortable to a listener or possibly even inflammatory. And I think that that's something we really need to notice within ourselves because weight and shape and size are still so very, very personal and can feel triggering in different ways. 
And I think that leads us into one of our first pieces of a consideration when somebody walks into our office who may be normal weight within the BMI, according to the BMI, or may even be above what's considered the normal range of BMI. What is your own weight bias? And that would be, what attitudes do you have about weight and size? Do you favor thinness? Do you have opinions or stereotypes about people who have size? So I think that's probably the very first consideration is, where are you in your own level of weight bias that you notice about yourself? And then Deborah Gard said something that I, I have held in my memory because I think it's really profound. She said, we diagnose as eating disorders in thin people what we prescribe in fat people. And that takes a minute to think about because a person of any size can have an eating disorder and that's not limited to just anorexia nervosa typical or atypical. That's bulimia, that's binge eating disorder. Um, so I think that those are things to consider. Also, when someone is of average or higher weight, as we started to discuss in the definition of atypical anorexia, they can be just as medically sick, they can be just as at risk as someone who walked into your office that you had a sudden panic response to because they were that thin. So someone who walks in and doesn't look that sick can be that sick. So that's a huge consideration, I think. No pun intended with any words that reference size, by the way, in this. Also, you know, after we get through kind of the cultural competence aspects of it and the bedside manner, we need to look at the medical, nutritional, psychological, comorbidities, kind of those typical treatment aspects that you look at when you look at eating disorders. I want to bring Lauren back into this discussion, and I really appreciate, Ali, what you're sharing about our own weight biases. And I think that's a really important idea to bring in. And it reminds me of something that Lauren was saying earlier and kind of bringing it back to this basics between what our differences are between kind of that anorexia nervosa diagnosis that preceded, uh, you know, our current understanding of the literature and, and what we're talking about today with atypical anorexia. Lauren, could you reiterate for me kind of what the distinction is between these two areas? I know you shared that earlier, but I want to make sure I'm capturing that point. So the only difference is that people who are diagnosed as atypical anorexia are not at an objectively low emaciated weight. So what it means is that people who've gone through extreme weight loss who may have started out in much higher bodies, you know, thinking of people who are on like the biggest loser and there's examples of people from that show who were very medically compromised after extreme weight loss. And the reason that Allie and I wanted to write this paper specifically on atypical anorexia is that these people may show up in your office having lost weight and frustrated that their weight loss has stopped. And people who are not educated about atypical anorexia may even accept that helping them continue to lose weight is a reasonable goal. And without this knowledge, we can be unaware that they might be very, very ill just as someone who has anorexia and is truly in an emaciated body. So we actually can be doing harm by going along with their goal of weight loss. And that weight loss metric, 
that Ali, you mentioned earlier, you use that acronym BMI. And my understanding is that that's body mass index. Is that correct? Correct. So in, in hearing all of this, I, I want to throw out a question that I think really brings us back to the basics. And this maybe pulls from each of your respective experiences working with patients who have atypical anorexia. And I'm, I'm trying to integrate all of the really valuable thoughts that have been shared so far from your respective approaches, when a person walks into your office and shares this as a treatment goal, what, what kind of language do you use to engage that particular patient who, who shares that that's a goal of theirs, keeping in mind what we've been talking about with respect to weight bias? Like what specific kind of language would you use there? That someone's coming in seeking weight loss? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what would you say? So the language that I use is that body size is very individual. It's largely genetically determined that the research shows that for the most part, dieting doesn't work. It can work short term, but 95% of people tend to gain the weight back and many gain the weight back plus more. And so I will not help people with the goal of trying to lose weight because I, don't, I feel that could be harmful, but here's what I can work on with you instead. I can work on helping you address any problematic eating behaviors. I can help you deal with concerns about your body shape, introduce you to another philosophy called health at every size that I think has a lot of benefits. And I don't know what your weight is going to do. That's up to your body, not something that I feel like I can help you control. Right. And I may start to approach this in a way of questioning what their quality of life goals are with the weight loss, with their goal of weight loss. Why are they coming in asking for support with that? How do they define health? Is this just their doctor has told them that they're quote unquote overweight according to BMI. What do they want out of life? How is their weight loss pursuit getting in the way? As we were saying earlier, sometimes helping people to lose weight actually makes them sicker or can make their life much, much smaller. And that's especially when somebody maybe doesn't realize they have an eating disorder because sometimes people don't even realize that they've shifted from a pursuit of health or a pursuit of weight loss even in the goal, even with the goal of wanting better health, they may not realize that genetically they were vulnerable to the eating disorder and bam, they slipped into it. So I do a lot of exploration. I also try to find out what the words are for them that they want to use in referring to size. Some people prefer the word fat. Some people prefer overweight. Some people prefer person of size, person with size, larger bodied. So I think, you know, we kind of loop back to the whole aspect of how do we respectfully meet a client and explore what their goals are so that we can be aligned with what's truly in their best interest and their best health. And, and I think one of the harder things is that sometimes even people who seem larger bodied may need to restore weight to get back to health. And that can be extremely challenging in the context that we're in where thinness is so overvalued. And then Lauren, we, we PS the, the piece that to find a medical practitioner that supports 
health at every size that supports somebody maybe needing to restore their size and isn't, you know, kind of splitting the treatment by encouraging weight loss can also be a bit tricky because not everybody's trained in eating disorders. Right. And that's why it's so important that we find practitioners who have done their own work on weight stigma and aren't afraid of facing patients' growing bodies or not being able to be thin. And if we need some research, there is so much research about how weight bias is so prevalent in both the mental health and the medical field. So I think the first consideration, again, loops back to us looking at ourselves and really greeting parts of us that may be difficult to, to shake hands with. So with respect to, to resources, I'm going to ask this question from the perspective of a mental health provider who's coming, coming at this area from maybe a, a place of interest, but not of expertise. What would be resources that that, that kind of provider, mental health clinician, could reference or, or look to for more information building on our discussion today? Our article. That's a good place to start, yeah. <laughs> I already plugged it once. I like that. The Journal well, of Health not, Service Psychology. Well, another reason, though, that Lauren and I did this is because it's an emerging body of research and body of literature about how to treat. So there really is so very little to support clinicians. Hmm. That's why I just plugged this twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that's a really great point, though. I mean, you're saying there, there's little to support clinicians. And I, that struck me as a really important idea. Could you, could you expand on a little bit more what, what you meant there? Lauren, see if you have a PS on this. What I mean is eating disorders don't even receive a lot of research funding. So we're already limited on actual guidelines. Now, there are some guidelines that are online for free for clinicians, which are awesome and they're very helpful. But we have to now look at the anorexia traditional guidelines and ignore most of the stuff about weight in order to treat atypical anorexia because there's so little research and instructions for clinicians. Again, like Lauren and I wrote something because we just didn't see anything else out there and we really try to keep up on things. Right. And there's a delay of research if it only became a, a diagnosis or a an example of a diagnosis in 2013 and the research delay cycle. So there are now several papers about it, but it, there's still not a lot of guidance for clinicians on, on the standard of care. Yeah, yeah. Standard of care. And then too, Lauren, remember, remember when we were writing, we kept emailing each other with, Oh my gosh, another article just came out. Let's put it in. Yeah. Yeah. So it's emerging <laughs> and, you know, but again, it's, it's research that is, pretty raw. It's not, again, treatment guidelines. So I think a great resource is the Association for Size Diversity of Health, ASDA, which is the owner of the trademark Health at Every Size. And I think that's a really important resource for clinicians who are interested in learning more about weight bias and weight inclusive approaches to health and mental health treatment. I think that the Academy for Eating Disorders is a wonderful resource in that even if you like it on the Facebook page, they post current research. So you're likely to catch what's emerging as it is being published because they'll post new publications. Right. And then of course, National Eating Disorders Association 
and the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals are also great resources. And for clinicians who want to get advanced training in eating disorders, the International Association for Eating Disorder Professionals actually offers the only certification program in the United States. Well, it may, it may not be the only one, but it's accepted throughout the United States. Excellent. Allie, Lauren, I'd like to thank each of you for your time and expertise today on this episode of The Clinical Consult, brought to you by the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. And just as a reminder to our listeners, the discussion that we had today is not meant to serve as formal clinical or diagnostic advice in working with patients and is instead intended for general information and discussion purposes only. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren.